Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Holly, can I tell you a story? Please about, do. It's about what we're going to talk about today. My other half, Patrick, his parents got married in New Orleans in the mid-1960s, and they had to submit documentation of their race in order to get a marriage license. That seems so bizarre to me. It, me too. Uh, he doesn't remember the details, and uh, unfortunately his parents have both passed away, so he can't ask them, but... In his memory, they each had to prove that they weren't more than one-eighth black, or in the language of the time, Negro. Uh, If either one of them had been one race and the other not, their marriage would have been a felony in Louisiana, as well as in many other states. Um, So this law that we are talking about today, or a series of laws, the anti-miscegenation laws that were in the South at the time, they were affecting a lot of people of every race, even though the laws themselves were mostly focused on marriages with one white person and one person of another race. So in the discussion of Loving versus Virginia, which we're going to talk about today, it often is focused on the civil rights movement and what the ruling meant to African Americans, which is absolutely a right way to look at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because anti-miscegenation laws were horribly demeaning to uh, African-American people. It was also a law that applied to the rights of everyone of every race. Uh, so it had a broad application, apart from the fact that anti-miscegenation laws were really a product of slavery and were racist in their origin. And that is a, a thing that the Supreme Court eventually ruled. And it, you are then, no matter what your race, burdened with proving it. right. Just to be with the person you want to spend your life with. Yes. Which is a bizarre hoop to have to jump through. It is. I, I knew that uh, that there were anti-miscegenation laws in effect in a lot of the United States before Loving versus Virginia. I did not realize that there were states uh, that had sort of a proof step before you could marry someone. So. Yeah, I mean, there have been the blood tests and well, the blood other tests, elements, but yeah. the proof of your um, racial heritage is... Yeah, proof of race was a new one. I would on think me. that would be, in some cases, hard to prove. That is one of the things that came up before the Supreme Court. So we're, we're going to start back at the Lovings in this part of this story. After getting the letter that Mildred Loving sent to them in 1963 asking them for help, The ACLU referred the Lovings to Bernard S. Cohen, who we quoted in the first part of this podcast, as saying that when he told the Lovings that their case was probably going to go to the Supreme Court, his jaw dropped. It had been four years since the Lovings' guilty verdict, and Virginia law required appeals to be filed within 120 days. So since their sentence had been suspended, as long as they stayed outside of Virginia for 25 years, Cohen determined that the case could be reopened if they violated that court order. So they came home for a visit and were arrested. And Cohen filed a motion before Judge Bazile on November 6, 1963, asking for the charges to be dismissed. He was arguing that the law was unconstitutional. He cited that it violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment and denied the Lovings the fundamental right of marriage. Judge Bazile did not act on this motion. And months went by. Cohen met during this time civil rights lawyer Philip J. Hirschkopf. 
Hirschkopf and Cohen had both been students of Chet Antu at Georgetown when they were studying law. So Hirschkopf joined Cohen's firm, and they worked together on the Loving case for the next three years. And the two attorneys together filed a motion in federal court in October, uh, on the 28th of October in 1964, asking a panel of judges to address Judge Bazile's refusal to act. The judges directed Judge Bazile to make a ruling, or the case would automatically be moved to federal court. They also ruled that Mildred and Richard could return to Virginia together while the case was in progress. So that was kind of a big... Right. shift in what had already been established. Right. They moved to a racially mixed neighborhood in King and Queen County, Virginia. Uh, their home life was pretty quiet. Uh, as as we talked about in the first episode, it, it was a region of Virginia that, that did not get a lot into each other's business racially. That That's sort of how it was reported, uh, that, that people kind of let each other mind their own business. So their home life was pretty quiet. But Cohen and Hirschkopf became the targets of threats and harassment because of their representation of the Lovings. And some of it was related to their both being Jewish. So while the Lovings were having a pretty quiet home life while stuff was in the works, their attorneys were really getting a lot of harassment. And then finally, on January 22nd of 1965, so several months have gone by at that point, Judge Bazile issued an order denying Cohen's motion. In it, he stated, quote, Almighty God created the races white, black, yellow, Malay, and red. He placed them on separate continents, but for the interference with his arrangement, there would be no cause for such marriages. The fact that he separated the races shows that he did not intend for the races to mix. This quote became infamous. (laughs) It was cited repeatedly as an example of, of racism, essentially. Cohen and Hirschkopf appealed, and they asked for the case to be heard in federal court. Instead, it was heard in the Supreme Court of Appeals in Virginia, which denied the Loving's appeal in March of 1966. The, the next step. Next step, Supreme Court. Cohen and Hirschkopf filed a notice of appeal with the U.S. Supreme Court on July 29, 1966. Melvin L. Wolf and David Carliner, who were both prominent ACLU lawyers, helped them prepare the statement and the brief that followed. And since they were appealing a lower court's ruling, the attorneys had to prove that a federal or constitutional issue was at stake. So Cohen and Hirschkopf built an argument that focused on the racial integrity statute as discriminatory, denying the due process and equal protection guaranteed under the 14th Amendment, as well as other basic civil rights. Virginia's racial integrity statute included 10 sections. Uh, While Mildred and Richard had only been charged with breaking two of them, Cohen and Hirschkopf's 20-page statement referred to all 10 sections of the code in the hope that the Supreme Court would overturn the whole thing. They justified this by saying that if only those two parts were stricken down, then Mildred and Richard would just be found guilty of one of the other parts and stripped of their right to marry again. They also cited the Supreme Court's ruling in Brown versus the Board of Education and McLaughlin versus Florida, uh, which was school integration and different treatment of race in adultery and lewd cohabitation from our previous episode. Uh, so they cited those rulings, among others. Cohen and Hirschkopf's statement also explained how the law was disrupting the Loving's lives. They couldn't live together in their hometown and raise their children. Their children were branded as illegitimate because their parents' marriage wasn't valid. If one of the Lovings died, the other wouldn't get Social Security survivor benefits. 
and their children wouldn't automatically inherit their property if their parents died. So basically, the Lovings are being excluded from legal protections that are granted to other families because of their race. The Supreme Court's clerk asked the Virginia Attorney General to respond. And on November 18th of 1966, the state of Virginia filed a 23-page reply and asked the Supreme Court not to consider the case. The state's argument was that the law didn't violate the 14th Amendment and that the framers of the amendment did not intend for it to keep states from regulating marriage. And Virginia argued that numerous other decisions by both state and federal courts had upheld anti-miscegenation statutes already. The state of Virginia also asked the court not to consider any of the ten sections of their anti-miscegenation code, other than the two under which the Lovings were actually charged. The Supreme Court got all of this information, and on December 12, 1966, it announced that it would hear the case, and that oral arguments would take place on April 10, 1967. So now we're getting to the actual Supreme Court hearings. Yes. So Cohen and Hirschkopf prepared for the Supreme Court case, along with several other ACLU lawyers and civil rights experts. And they conferred with psychologists and sociologists and biologists who all specialized in interracial relationships and the well-being of children with parents of different races. So the way that this works is that both parties submit a brief to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has time to review all of that before hearing oral arguments. So Cohen and Hirschkopf submitted a 40-page brief to the Supreme Court on February 17th of 1967, and it outlines six key points. And I'm just going to read them as they are written down in a book called Supreme Court Milestones, Loving versus Virginia by Susan Dudley Gold. So their points were, the entire 10 sections of Virginia's anti-miscegenation code should be abolished. Based on their history, Virginia's laws against interracial marriage were, quote, relics of slavery and expressions of racism. Laws against interracial marriage caused, quote, immeasurable social harm. Despite the historical record, the 14th Amendment did not exempt state anti-miscegenation laws from its requirements. Virginia's laws against interracial marriage were racially discriminatory and denied the Lovings equal protection of the laws, and the laws also violated the 14th Amendment's due process clause. And the brief went into detail about each of these points, arguing that the idea of racial purity, quotes, paralleled Hitler's hope of creating a super race, and that the laws were, quote, a present-day incarnation of an ancient evil. And they tied that into the concept of white slave owners raping their slaves, that they set up a case system, and that the laws were tied to an idea of a pure race when there was really no proof that any such thing existed. That comes up a lot in the arguments, the idea of of whether there is a pure race and why the focus on this pure race is on the white race and not other races. Cohen and Hirschkopf also noted in a footnote that had Pocahontas and John Rolfe been living in Virginia at that present time, they could not have married one another. The state of Virginia submitted a 52-page brief on March 20th of 1967, which was prepared by the state's legal team. Attorney General Robert Y. Button and Assistant Attorneys General Kenneth C. Patty and R.D. McElwain. Virginia's argument was, number one, that the law was not unconstitutional and that many other rulings had said so, that it was not the court's role to overturn rulings based on sociological, biological, and anthropological research, and that if the court did, that research would be contradictory, 
Virginia argued that the codes did not violate the 14th Amendment because it was not the intent of the framers of the 14th Amendment to include anti-miscegenation laws and its scope. The next 24 pages, so almost half of the document, was about the legislative history of the 14th Amendment. There were five additional amici curiae, friend of the court, not directly involved in the proceedings, but offering additional information, briefs. Uh, four were in the Loving's favor, and one was in Virginia's favor. The one in Virginia's favor was written by the state of North Carolina. North Carolina had anti-miscegenation laws that were very like what was on the books in Virginia at the time. The only one of these that was actually permitted to argue before the court was the Japanese American Citizens League. The other briefs in favor of the Lovings were from the NAACP, the Legal Defense and Education Fund of the NAACP, which filed separately, and a coalition of Catholic bishops and other Catholic social organizations. These briefs were largely focused on equal protection and due process. The Catholic organization's brief added to that that the anti-miscegenation laws violated the First Amendment by keeping people from exercising their religious freedoms, saying that marriage was, quote, a fundamental act of religion. The oral arguments took place on April 10th of 1967, and you can actually listen to the entire oral argument online, which Tracy has been doing a lot of. I listened to the whole oral argument, and we will put a link to that in our show notes if you would like to listen to it also. Um, We're going to talk about the oral argument, both the part that was in the Lovings' favor and the part that was argued for Virginia. So for the Lovings, Cohen and Hirschkopf divided the time that they were allowed to have, with Hirschkopf arguing the equal protection portion and Cohen presenting the due process portion of their argument. Hirschkopf was only about two years into his career, and to argue before the Supreme Court, a lawyer had to have been admitted to the highest court in the state or territory or the District of Columbia, for three years. So Cohen had to move that Hirschkopf be admitted pro hoc vice, which is sort of a, just for this time, I would like this person to be able to argue this case with me. So it's a one-time dispensation, basically. You got, yes, he got a one-time dispens- dispensation. He's really early in his career at this point. So Hirschkopf went first uh, with his points on equal protection and on the race hysteria that had prompted the Virginia codes in question and other codes similar to it. He started right out of the gate with classifying the racial integrity statute as a slavery law. He does not pull any punches with that either. That's one of the first sentences out of his mouth is that the racial integrity statute is a slavery law. He also pointed out that a lot of the immigration and racial purity laws that had come into play at about that time happened when northern states were worried about the influx of Irish and Italian immigrants and western states were worried about Asian immigrants. So these states that had worries about the immigration of people that were coming into their their part of the country, they built on post-Civil War laws that were governing race. So as sort of a, a side note here, that there's a whole lot of talk about the South in this case, because the anti-miscegenation laws were all in the South at that point. Uh, but there was racism in a lot of the rest of the world that directly fed into this whole argument. The idea of racial integrity was really tied to the idea of white supremacy, because in almost all cases, the primary focus of anti-miscegenation laws was preventing white people from marrying people of other races. So the focus was on keeping the white blood pure and not that of other races. And he wrapped up his argument with a reiteration that the laws in question, again, he was like, slavery. He circled right back to that slavery law. That's kind of how he bookended his whole 
presentation. Right. Uh, Cohen followed, and his argument was about due process. There was more back and forth between Cohen and the Supreme Court justices than with Hirschkopf. He argued that the equal protection argument was pretty strong, but he was there was worry that if the court only found a violation of the equal protection clause, that Virginia could pass other discriminatory laws that they would be okay because they were quote equal. So they would just equalize by passing more yeah, restrictive laws. They would equalize the law by saying that white people could only marry white people and African Americans could only marry African Americans and that Asians could only marry Asians and that that would be equal. Uh, so they were building a due process argument to try to counteract that possibility. Cohen also passed on Richard Loving's famously quoted line to the court as an example that uh, even a lay person has a fundamental understanding of what's fair, and he tied that into the idea of due process. And that quote from Richard Loving was, Tell the court I love my wife, and it is just unfair that I can't live with her in Virginia. Justice Potter Stewart questioned Cohen about how this due process argument might apply to, for example, first cousins or siblings marrying. And Cohen responded that states could still make marriage laws based on reasonable reasons, but that making them based on race was, in fact, not reasonable. He argued that the 14th Amendment was an amendment written as protection against racial discrimination. And in that light, it applied very clearly and strongly to the Loving case. Cohen called race, quote, just not acceptable grounds, but an arbitrary and capricious ground for denying marriage. They spent a great deal of time discussing the idea of cousins marrying in the actual case. Yeah, when you in listen, the hearing. when you listen to the oral argument, there's a fair amount of questioning about whether this precedent would apply to other things that are regarded as not okay, like the age or how closely people are related. Uh, that sort of thing. And so there's a, a pretty good amount of back and forth between the justices and Cohen when talking about that part of it. Um, Cohen also poked a hole in the state's argument that there had been debate about anti-miscegenation laws in the context of the passage of the 14th Amendment. He noted that all of that debate really happened in the context of the Civil Rights Act of 1866, not the 14th Amendment. He called the racial integrity statutes in Virginia, quote, odious to the 14th Amendment. Cohen also posed the question of exactly what danger would there be to Virginia, uh, to the people of Virginia, that these laws were trying to prevent. Like, what will it harm anyone else if we allow couples like this to marry? Right. That came up when uh, Virginia was making its argument, which we'll talk about in, in a moment. First, there was the the one other person who was allowed to make an argument for the lovings in this in the oral arguments that was William Marutani who was the attorney for the Japanese American Citizens League and he got 15 minutes to speak to the Supreme Court he made a personal appeal as a Nisei which is a person an American person born of Japanese parents and his point of view was that that made him one of the very few people in the courtroom apart from the other Nisei who were watching who could definitively say what their race was all the way back. In the melting pot of America, he said, it would be just about impossible to prove that you had, quote, no trace whatever of any blood other than Caucasian, which is what the Virginia law required. He also noted that anthropologists really reject the idea of, quote, a pure race. But 
that with scholars saying there's no such thing as a pure race, the state of Virginia would have lay people assigning race to people using their physical features, which have, quote, no legislative purpose. Marutani also repeated the argument that the Virginia law was clearly about white supremacy, since the laws only governed the purity of white people's blood and were not concerned with anyone else's racial purity. He also kind of nods to the reluctance that we talked about before that the court had seemed to show in getting into race relations, because Maritani noted that striking down anti-miscegenation laws wasn't going to make anyone do anything they didn't want to do. That wasn't going to make people have to go marry someone of another race if they didn't want to the way it had made schools integrate when people didn't want to. So instead, what was going to happen if they struck down anti-miscegenation laws was to restore the freedom of choice to everyone, including people who didn't actually agree with intermarriage between the races. And that concluded the arguments in favor of the Lovings. And then for the Commonwealth... Uh, Virginia Assistant Attorney General R.D. McElwain III presented the state's case. And he stressed again that the state's wish that the court focus uh, just on the two parts of the statute that Richard and Mildred had been found guilty of breaking. Uh, Chief Justice Earl Warren started questioning him pretty early in his presentation. And he asked about the provision in Virginia law that a white person could marry a, quote, North American Indian if that person had less than one-sixteenth Indian blood. McElwain said that was a special provision and that he himself could see some constitutional problems with it. But he claimed that the reason that the law in Virginia was focused on white people marrying black people was because 79% of the Virginia population was white and 20% was black, leaving the remaining 1% kind of not really worth worrying about in terms of racial purity. That was almost his exact words. He... He, he, his, he was like, well, you've got 79% who are white and 20% who are black, and the remaining 1% not really a lot to worry about. Not, not germane to their thinking. Uh, he argued that the law was equal because black people couldn't marry white people and white people couldn't marry black people. So he just kind of inverted it and said, see, that's equal. Right. It's the same for both sides. The court then asked him whether an interracial couple who had lived somewhere else and gotten married and then moved to Virginia would be breaking the law. So if you lived in Virginia and then you moved somewhere else to get or went somewhere else to get married and then came back to Virginia to skirt the law, that was illegal. And his argument was that, no, it would not be illegal. But then there was some discussion about whether states needed to recognize marriages that were valid in other states, but not valid in that particular state. And they they went back and forth about that for a while. And then McElwain went on to make two main arguments. First, he reviewed the history of the 14th Amendment and its passage at length, saying that that the debates leading to its passage showed it was not intended to prevent anti-miscegenation laws. And then he went on to argue that even if the amendment was intended to prevent those laws, Virginia's intent was to prevent, quote, the sociological and psychological evils which attend interracial marriages, basically arguing that those laws were right and reasonable. So Chief Justice Earl Warren asked him a lot of pointed questions about the state's position that anti-miscegenation laws had been discussed in the debate around the 14th Amendment. Remember, the, the legal team for the Lovings had already alleged that that was not the case. And McElwain explained that it really, he eventually, after some hedging, uh, brought up that it was the Freedmen's Bureau Bill and the Civil Rights Act of 1866. But he argued 
that that the language from those two things had made it in whole cloth into the 14th Amendment, meaning that people didn't discuss them in the 14th Amendment discussions because they had been already discussed and decided on elsewhere. So why continue to talk about it? And he reiterated the state's rights argument and the argument that states needed to be able to do what was right in their own particular population, saying, quote, there is a rational classification setting so far as the Virginia population is concerned for preventing marriages between white and colored people who make up almost the entirety of the state population and that this is supported by the prevailing climate of scientific opinion. He tied the interracial marriage conversation to bigamy and incest and said that families that were intermarried had excessive hardships from society. And he got into pretty lengthy conversation with some of the justices, particularly Chief Justice Warren and Justice Hugo Black, about the research that was tied to race and marriage. Essentially, McElwain kept appearing to cite studies that were biased while ignoring the studies that that ran contrary to the position that he was making. Chief Justice Warren was not tolerant (laughs) of that. (laughs) Chief Justice Warren kept pointing out things that contradicted the evidence that McElwain was presenting. And eventually, Justice Hugo Black said to him, may I ask you this question? Aside from all questions from the genetics, psychology, psychiatry, sociology, and everything else, aside from all of them, Forgetting it for the moment, is there any doubt in your mind that the object of this statute, the basic promise on which they rest, is that white people are the superiors of the colored people and should not be permitted to marry? So McElwain tried to get out of answering this question. And then finally, after some various sort of angled attempts at at answering it, acknowledged that yes, When those laws were set down, they were definitely racist when they were passed, but he tried to argue that they were still justifiable as he was arguing them before the Supreme Court. And the justices also asked how he thought they should rule in light of Brown versus Board of Education. And McElwain stated that education was a fundamental right. Justice John M. Harlan then asked whether marriage was also an, inc- an equally important right, and McElwain said that marriage was not equal. Children are required to go to school, but no one is required to marry. After McElwain's time was up, Cohen only had a few minutes for his rebuttal. And I'm sort of extrapolating based on what he says. He, he did not really talk a lot about the specific arguments that the state had made. I think their people were pretty confident that the state had not made a good case. So what he spent most of that time talking about was the necessity that the court decide on all ten sections of the code and not just the two that the Lovings had been charged with breaking. Um, He reiterated uh, the rights that Richard and Mildred had to their home and their family and their children and, and tried to make a strong case that if they only struck down two parts of the code, that their rights would be disrupted by the rest of the code. And that concluded the oral arguments. As happens in Supreme Court cases, then there was a long time before the the court issued an opinion. And on June 12th, 1967, Chief Justice Earl Warren delivered the court's opinion. It unanimously decided to overturn Virginia's entire code of racial purity laws, and he cited that using race to restrict the freedom to marry violated the Equal Protection Clause and that the Lovings had been denied due process. 
So from the opinion, a quote is, quote, there can be no question but that Virginia's miscegenation statutes rest solely upon distinctions drawn according to race. The statutes prescribe generally accepted conduct if engaged in by members of different races. Over the years, this court has consistently repudiated uh, distinctions between citizens solely because of their ancestry as being odious to a free people whose institutions are founded upon the doctrine of equality. The court also noted that because the law only dealt with white people marrying other people of other races, it was clearly meant to, quote, maintain white supremacy. And also from that opinion, another great quote is that marriage is one of the basic civil rights of man, fundamental to our very existence and survival. Justice Stewart also noted in a separate opinion that a state law cannot make an act a crime because of the race of the person doing it. So you can't take a generally legal activity and make it illegal because of the race of the person. Um, This decision voided all of the anti-miscegenation laws in all 16 states that were still banning interracial marriages at the time. So huge change. Giant change in uh, the legal status of marriage in many, many places. Yes. The the Warren court was pretty sweeping in a lot of ways, and this is an example of that. Um, So what happened next, Holly? Well, even though the court's ruling voided the anti-miscegenation laws, a lot of those laws remained on the books in several states for some time. So Virginia repealed them in 1968, but still had definitions of different races on the books until 1975. Uh, Florida, Oklahoma, Missouri, Texas, and West Virginia had repealed their laws by 1969. Tennessee citizens voted to repeal that state's laws in 1978. Mississippi had a ban on interracial marriage in its state constitution until 1987. Uh, South Carolina had a section in its constitution barring marriages between white people and anyone with more than one-eighth African blood until 1998. Alabama was the last state to repeal its anti-miscegenation laws, and that was in 2000 after a popular vote. Uh, 60% had voted in favor of repeal. So you'll still see sometimes uh, stories come up in the news of people who are denied marriage because of their race. But at this point, if someone does that, it is illegal. Yeah. And we can talk about the Lovings. What happened to them? So they moved back to Central Point, to their hometown where they always wanted to be and always wanted to raise their children. And they kind of laid low after that. They stayed out of the spotlight. They didn't, like, become... I think if this had all happened today, it would be very different because they would probably be hounded by reporters and reality TV producers. Right. If nothing else, they would probably have been, in today's time, really pressured to, to become sort of evangelists for the civil rights movement. But they really... they they politely declined uh, the media spotlight uh, after they moved back. Sadly, they were in a car accident in 1975 in which they were hit by a drunk driver and Richard was killed and Mildred lost the sight in one eye. Um, She later died in pneumonia in May of 2008. Um, There was a, a 1996 TV movie made about their story called Mr. and Mrs. Loving. And then there was another on HBO, a documentary called The Loving Story, and that premiered just last year on Valentine's Day, so Valentine's Day of 2012. Uh, and it will actually be out on DVD shortly. I really wanted to watch it before doing this episode, but it's it was not available to me by any legal means. So you will have to wait until May 28th. Yes. Um, June 12th is the anniversary of the Supreme Court's ruling, and it is unofficially celebrated as Loving Day. And also, Mildred, who really... 
Uh, she she didn't give a lot of interviews. She she pretty much kept to herself after, uh, especially after her husband's death. She gave a statement about the freedom to marry in 2007, so about a year before her death. And her statement, here's a, here's an excerpt of it. Surrounded as I am now by wonderful children and grandchildren, not a day goes by that I don't think of Richard and our love. Our right to marry and how much it meant to me to have that freedom to marry the person precious to me, even if others thought that he was the wrong kind of person for me to marry. I believe all Americans, no matter their race, no matter their sex, no matter their sexual orientation, should have the same freedom to marry. Government has no business imposing some people's religious beliefs over others, especially if it denies people's civil rights. I am still not a political person, but I am proud that Richards and my name is on a court case that can help reinforce the love, the commitment, the fairness, and the family that so many people, black or white, young or old, gay or straight, seek in life. I support the freedom to marry for all. That's what loving and loving are all about. I love her. (laughs) That is my one personal side. Uh, that is not based on any documented research. I think that's lovely. It is. It's uh, quite a legacy for someone to leave. Yeah. And um, that that's why this case has been cited pretty often in, in the Defense of Marriage Act and Proposition 8 cases that are before the Supreme Court as we record this. Um, the Loving versus Virginia case has been cited a lot, but I, I don't know that many people really know the whole story of that, so I hope people have enjoyed learning about it in this episode. And do you also have listener mail? I do. This listener mail is from Linda. Linda says, I just finished listening to your Trial of Goody Garlic podcast. I couldn't believe it when you stated that this incident took place in East Hampton. I had recently listened to your podcast on Johnny Appleseed and was surprised to learn that he grew up in Longmeadow, Massachusetts, where I have lived for the past 10 years. Uh, side note, we did remark that there was a lot of Massachusetts happening <laughs> yeah. in, in our recent episodes, and that was not intentional. It was just kind of a coincidence. So back to Linda's letter. Now another podcast taking place in Massachusetts again. East Hampton, which is just about 20 miles from here. Amazing. Oh, but wait, as I listen more, I realize that you probably meant East Hampton, which I believe is in Long Island, New York. However, this is only a guess, since the state where the East Hampton, or East Hampton, was never mentioned. Perhaps in the future, you might want to state which state you are referring to. After all, I can't be the only listener who knows of more than one East Hampton. By the way, keep up the good work. Love your podcast. So first, thank you so much, Linda. Second, the reason we didn't say what state it was in is because it's kind of a confusing mess. It wasn't really in a state yet. And we mentioned at the end of that podcast that it had fallen under the, or had agreed to become part of the jurisdiction of Connecticut. It is indeed the East Hampton that is part of Long Island. It had agreed to join up with Connecticut uh, as part of the that sort of dual legal thing that they were doing where they were delivering goody garlic and kind of working that deal. But of course that didn't pan out and now it's part of New York. Yeah. We talked so about it wasn't really part of any state yet. Right. We talked about the Connecticut part in, in the episode, but, but yeah, at the time it was not in any state. And then when, when Long Island became part of New York, then East Hampton became part of New York also. Um, I found that all to be so confusing when yes. we were talking about but it. But I probably should have clarified at some point that it was, in fact, the one on Long Island. So, so yes. my apologies. Thank you, Linda. Yes. Thank you for sending that to us. 
If you would like to email us, you may do so at historypodcast at discovery.com. We're also on facebook.com slash history class stuff and on Twitter at Missed in History. We have launched a Tumblr recently. It is mistinhistory.tumblr.com and we're on Pinterest. If you would like to learn more about what we have talked about these last two episodes, you can come to our website and put the word marriage in the search bar. You will find pretty quickly in the search results, betrothed through the centuries, a timeline of marriage, which references the Loving versus Virginia case. You can do all of that and a lot more at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Netflix streams TV shows and movies directly to your home, saving you time, money, and hassle. As a Netflix member, you can instantly watch TV episodes and movies streaming directly to your PC, Mac, or right to your TV with your Xbox 360, PS3, or Nintendo Wii console, plus Apple devices, Kindle, and Nook. Get a free 30-day trial membership. Go to www.netflix.com and sign up now.